the race began. And the first phase of any race, especially a marathon, I suppose, would be called the pleasure stage. At this point, running is fun. Adrenaline is pumping. Heads are clear. The body is loose. The sun is shining. The birds are singing. You're one with the cosmos. Functioning like a well-oiled machine. How long this pleasure stage lasts depends on the runner's conditioning. Since my hip replacement two years ago, that for me would be about 12 to 13 feet. <clears throat> After the initial rush of excitement wears off, those middle miles of a marathon become a grind. But after the grind comes flat-out torture. The, the temptation to stop for many marathoners is overwhelming. Their, their feet are just protesting vigorously. Knifing pain is stabbing their calves. Muscle, thigh muscles are cramping. Lungs seem to fill with burning coals. R runners refer to this stage as hitting the wall. And to hit the wall and keep going is the ultimate test for a runner. Races are won or lost, actually completed or abandoned at the wall. And it was here, it was, it was in this last stage that watching that race got most interesting. Mr. Dairy Cow was no longer laughing and working the crowd. The human caterpillar was collectively hanging over this fence, retching. <laughs> All of them. At the finish, people came dribbling in one at a time. Some of them didn't make it at all. The start of a race is enjoyable. It's easy. It's finishing that is the hard work. And to finish well, that is the glory. Finishing well is what counts. And the capacity to finish well is what the biblical writers call perseverance. Now, perseverance is not a simple solution to every hard thing. We all have limits that the mere desire to endure by itself will not transcend. The ability to complete a marathon well requires training. It requires Hours, days, weeks of habitual exercise. To finish the Christian life well, namely sanctified, besetting sins, crucified, the character of Jesus amplified, this requires training. And the training requires habits. Habits that seem hard at first, but habits that once developed position us in the flow of God's transforming grace. It's been our custom, it's been our habit <laughs> to take the first few weeks of each new year and give attention to these habits of grace that once learned, regularly practiced, empower us to finish our respective course to the glory of Jesus. Yesterday, for example, <clears throat> I finished reading through the entire Bible I've kind of lost count, but I know that it has been at least 40 years in a row. Maybe a few more than that. 
The, the, I remember back the first year thinking, you know, is this even possible? Now, considering it as a challenge, it doesn't even cross my mind. It just automatically, I, I, I do it again. Imagine habits of grace practiced year in and year out. What the Lord might do in you. Imagine what sins might diminish. Imagine what spiritual breakthroughs could happen. Imagine what, what power would be displayed as you draw closer and closer to the finish line of your life. Today, I want to introduce you, perhaps reintroduce you, to the habit of biblical meditation. And, and to be clear, I'm not talking about Bible reading. I'm referring to meditating, pondering, musing, considering, thinking deeply about God and all that he has said and revealed in and through his word. And our starting point today is Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, as an expression of our respect, our regard, our reverence for the Lord and for what he has said. Please stand. <clears throat> the context here is that Moses, Moses who those of us here at Emmaus have been considering over the last few months, Moses has died. Israel's on the verge of going to war and conquering the promised land under the leadership of Commander Joshua. And this is what God says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let's pray together. We've already engaged in a number of habits, habits, practices, things that we do regularly, week in and week out, that position us to experience your very presence and your power, O oh God. Thank you for a meeting like this. Thank you for songs that we sing that bring focus to our attention and affection. Thank you for this practice, this habit of preaching your word and hearing your word. Thank you for all of these things through which, by which you have ordained to communicate yourself in very personal and powerful ways. And so, Lord, for your discernible presence and activity, we look to you again. Be glorified, O oh Lord. 
by revealing yourself to us, working in us and through us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, whenever we talk about habits, the habits that we practice, the habits that position us to experience God's presence and power in our lives, it's, it's always necessary to remind ourselves that there is nothing that we can do, there's nothing we can do to merit God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn His gracious presence or cause His grace to flow into our lives. Our friend David Mathis wisely writes, I can flip a switch but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. So it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but He has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. And and biblical meditation is one of those conduits by which we can routinely avail ourselves of, of those paths of blessing, or we can neglect them to our detriment. So so my outline for today falls under four headings. I want to talk about the value of biblical meditation, the nature of biblical meditation, the subject matter of biblical meditation, and then the practice of biblical meditation. So first of all, the value or, or the excellence, we might say, of biblical meditation. Why is regular meditation on what God has communicated in his word so important, so necessary, so excellent? In terms of spiritual life, it's really the difference between prosperity and poverty. It's the difference between strength and weakness. It's the difference between vibrancy and frailty. It's the difference between substance and superficiality. Joshua 1.8 says, Then, as you meditate on God's word day and night, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And it should be obvious, I think, pray, that the the promise held out here is not a guarantee of money or victory. The blessings are spiritual. We know that because of a parallel text that we're very familiar with in Psalm 1. Verse 3, which says, The blessed person is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And here's that blessing. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So, biblical meditation, it awakens the spirit of the lethargic. It energizes the soul of the weary. It 
it lifts the spirit of the downcast. And, and if we don't practice this habit, then the best that we can hope for is a weak and disordered and sin-filled Christian life. When the Lord communicated himself to Joshua to encourage him for the task of, of conquering the promised land, he did, they didn't discuss military strategy or battle tactics. Rather, God told jo Joshua that his greatest need was to live life meditating on God's word. Why? Why is that so necessary? It's because God's word is the substance of our communion with God. And God's presence and power are what we need most. It's because biblical meditation works in us a, a healthy reverence for the Lord. And the reverential fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Biblical meditation engenders peace in God's providence and hope in God's promises. Biblical meditation engenders love for God and Christ. Biblical meditation weakens love for sin and intensifies hatred for sin. In other words, it strengthens us spiritually in every way. It nourishes all the best parts. One Puritan author writes, Little meditation makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and of little usefulness to others. Which part of that would you say is optional for a military commander like Joshua? Or for a stay-at-home mom? Why is, why is it so significant? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it's, certainly, it's certainly the reason that our flesh and Satan himself oppose Biblical meditation like nothing else. Thomas Watson writes, The devil is an enemy of meditation. He knows that meditation is a means to compose the heart and to bring it into a gracious frame. Satan, listen to this, Satan is content that you should be hearing and praying, Christians, so that you be not meditating, Christians. <laughs> How many of us are hearing and hearing and praying and praying, but not meditating? He can stand your small shot, your hearing of sermons and reading of books, provided that you don't put in this bullet, namely the bullet of meditation. In times past, biblical meditation was considered to be the supreme, quote-unquote, supreme means of grace. It was the habit of all habits. And, and, and listen, it, its neglect was considered the neglect of biblical meditation was considered the cause of every sin 
and the cause of all punishment. Think about that. It was and remains the habit of all habits, the exercise of all exercises. And so, what exactly is it? The nature, the essence, if you will, of biblical meditation. And the first thing that we can say is that meditation, really, in and of itself, it's, it's something that requires almost no help in, divine, in defining. We, we actually do it quite naturally. <laughs> in fact, we do it all the time. Some of you are, well, probably most of you, all of you are doing it even right now. Most simply, to meditate is to think. Meditating is imagining, it's contemplating, it's considering, it's brooding over something. The old word is musing. We see that word in Psalm 39, verse 3, where David writes, My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. <laughs> Meditating is musing. And, and musing, like all thinking, like all meditating, has an effect. We think about something long enough and our emotions are sure to follow. What, what happens when you rehearse in your mind some injustice or offense committed against you? More more then likely, you just like David, our hearts become hot. What happens when you nurse some lustful imagination? Your heart becomes hot. Why do we lose our temper? Why do we fall in love? Why do spouses have affairs? Why do businesses get started? Why are some people sullen and discouraged? Why are others inspired to achieve great things? You see, strong actions flow from strong affections. And strong affections rise from musing. You think about something, you think about it long enough, you feel something, you feel strongly enough, you do something. And it might be good, and it might not be good. I've been musing <clears throat> over this comment. This, this has stayed with me since I first read it this summer. It's from a 19th century pastor by the name of William Bates. He says, what is the wickedest part of a man's life? It is his vain thoughts. The darkest, most sinful part of our lives are empty, unfruitful, unhelpful, vain. Thoughts. 
Have you ever experienced the most potentially dangerous part of your... Have you, have you ever considered, mused, thought about that the most dang, potentially dangerous part of your life is your vain imagination? It's what you come up with. You know, you, you, the empty fantasies, unrealistic daydreams. Oh, if I was only rich, or if only if I had chosen this path, or if only I had done, you know, all these if onlys. These are, those are worthless thoughts. And where do they take you? What do they accomplish? Oh, the thoughts with which we assuage our discomforts and lonelinesses and our anxieties in the night. Meditation, friends, is very common. It's just garden variety life. It means to think about something, to dwell on something. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise, now that's the opposite of vain. If there's any of that, think about those things. <laughs> Biblical meditation means to give careful thought to pure and praiseworthy things. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. That's what we're going to do in a little bit. We're going to consider that, him, and what happened to him. Consider that so that, and here's the result of that thinking, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider. Meditating is what leads one away from weariness and away from faint-heartedness. We direct our mind's attention to an object. That's, that's what we're doing. You're, you're immersing yourself in it. I remember reading about Jonathan Edwards. It, it was said that he was able to take any subject and imagine it and consider it and contemplate it in kind of a 360-degree kind of a way. He, he would just mentally walk around it in his mind. And, and, and he'd ponder it from every angle. We have this capacity. We do it. We do it with certain things, right? According to Luke chapter 2, verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I've just recently come across it, just a treasure trove on, on biblical meditation. It's, it's a very useful book entitled God's Battle Plan for the Mind. It's written by David Saxton. I've, I've ordered a few copies. Hopefully, they'll be here by next Sunday, and we can have them on the book table for you. But, but here, here's just a couple of samples of how the Puritans understood the nature, the essence of, of biblical meditation. Thomas Watson, meditation is a holy exercise of the mind. I like that word, exercise, again. You know, we're, we're talking about spiritual marathons here. <laughs> a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. 
That's helpful. Isaac Ambrose, he's a favorite Puritan author of mine. He writes, Meditation is a deep and earnest musing upon some point of Christian instruction to to the strengthening up against the flesh, the world, and the devil. This is a great phrase. A steadfast bending of the mind to some spiritual matter. Discovering of it with ourselves till we bring the same to some profitable issue. Now, we don't talk that way these days, right? But, but perhaps more significantly, that, that kind of earnest musing in our time of like information overload, just this daily, hourly, moment by moment avalanche of media. Saturation. That, that, that kind of focused music, it's, it's almost inconceivable. TikTok feed of video content just rolling and rolling, changing every 7 to 12 seconds, whatever they say. That, that, has, that has trained or conditioned a generation with the attention span of... Well, where steadfast bending of the mind is nearly impossible. I mean, even analogies offered by contemporary theologians seems as challenging as running a marathon. This, This is Donald Whitney. He's a faculty member at Southern Seminary. He writes, hearing hearing God's word, hearing God's word. This is what we're doing right now. Hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. So think about that. <laughs> you come here and hear this and you walk out. That, that was one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. Biblical meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until all the rich tea flavor has been extracted. Such is the nature and the challenge of biblical meditation. And, a, and, a, and really, we have to own up to this, right? We have to admit, apart from the miracle, the miracle of, of regeneration, the miracle of a heart made new by God and His grace alone, one will not discover the kind of joyful affection in it in meditation as it was experienced, at least by the composer of Psalm 119, who writes, Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 119, verse 97. It is my meditation all the day. You see, we think about what we love. Our thoughts follow our affections, and our thoughts give rise to affections. Psalm 119, verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. We get that first part. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night so that I can meditate on something. 
whether or not it's what God has promised. There's another 19th century pastor by the name of William Bridge. He, he's written a lot of, oh, so help, many helpful things about pastoral ministry. He says, what greater delight, <laughs> what greater delight than to think on that God in whom he doth most delight. Though it be hard in regard to its practice or of its practice, yet it may be sweet and delightful in regard to its profit. And then he uses this little analogy which makes so much sense. It is not hard work for a man to be digging in the mines, digging up for silver, and yet delightful in regard to the profit. Busting your knuckles and sweating in the dark and breathing dirt, getting a sore back, and who cares because there's treasure in there. <laughs> we put up with backbreaking exertion if there's hope of gold. And, and even the most wearisome distractions are no match. For a heart made new. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, that would, that would be a distraction. Just knowing, that, just knowing that people are plotting against me, but much less, you know, like governor, government, and whoever else has got some strategy that they're plotting against me. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. And so we pray to God. Psalm 119, verse 27. Make me understand. Oh God, make me understand the way of your precepts. And implied then, as a result of that understanding, I will meditate on your wondrous works. Which leads to the subject of biblical meditation. And, and the most obvious subject, of, of course, here is, is all that God has communicated in his word. That's what Joshua 1.8 says. It's this book of the law that shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So the subject matter for biblical meditation is all that God has communicated of himself. Everything he's done, everything he is, everything he has said, all that he has made himself known to be in this word. This book and all the storehouses of treasure contained in it. This is the subject matter of our pondering, our musing, our thinking, our considering, our remembering. And the aim of it is that God would stir up our affections so as to direct and to govern our ambitions, that the goal is that God might set our hearts on fire so that we might cross that finish line free from besetting sins and more and more and more and more conform to the image of Jesus, that we would do according to all that is written in it. Loved ones, just consider, think, meditate, muse 
on the vast ocean depths of material by which God's word might, might ravish our thoughts. God in all his attributes, the person, the offices, which we have just meditated on the last few weeks, and the works of Jesus, the riches of the gospel, the privilege of uh, all the privileges that belong to true believers, the benefits, the benefits of trials and tribulations. I mean, it just goes on. Once again, it was the Puritans who emphasized certain biblical subjects more than others. And the reason that they did so was to, it was with a view to engendering care, to persevere in doing all that is written in this book. And so there, there were certain subjects that captured the, their, the focus of their meditation more than others, namely things that related to eternity. And so, so they, they would focus on the foolishness and the consequences of sin. They, they, they focused on per, the, per, their meditation um, to, to restrain particular temptations to sin. And, and really what, what restrained sin most of all in them was, was this careful devotion to careful thought and, and careful meditation about eternity, namely the certainty of death. They thought a lot about death. And God's sure judgment after death. And the incomparable glories of heaven. And the sobering Horrors of hell. Regarding that last one, Nathaniel Renu, I've just become familiar with, with his writings. It affected me very much. He writes, No man ever yet fled from hell, but first fixed his thoughts in some proportion on it. No man will fly fast enough from this pit of perdition, this lake of fire, if he do not oft look towards it and keep his eye upon it. So that one might be careful to do all according to all that is written here. There's no... There's no sweeter prosperity and there's no greater success than to gain that eternal pleasure to be had in heaven forever at God's right hand. And then here's the last thing. <clears throat> A word about the practice of biblical meditation. Oh my goodness, we could talk, talk a lot about this, how it might work its way out in us personally. Um, but I want to draw your attention uh, more specifically to the structure that we have intentionally built into um, just, the, just our corporate approach of life together at Emmaus Road Church. It begins right here. If you've been around long enough, or if you're just visiting, I think that you, <laughs> you, you, you get pretty 
quickly early on that, that this thing that we do, this preaching of God's word, it's a big deal to us. We take it seriously. Our elders give careful thought, serious attention to right, rightly handling and proclaiming God's word. That's where it starts. And then, tomorrow, we will distribute thoughtful questions along with the sermon manuscript for the purpose of, of keeping that word, keeping what you heard today at the forefront of your minds, corporately, so that, so that we're all staying in it together regarding what we heard preached here. Our aim is that together, corporately, we would remain in this word. I'm going to read it, this text again tomorrow. I'm going to read it when you get those huddle questions in your realm feed. You're going to think again. You're going to ponder again. You're going to muse on this word. And our prayer is that you would pray over this word. Joshua 1.8. Memorize this word. Meditate on it. Keep chewing on it. Chewing on it. And then, those of you who have joined us in this covenant of church membership will gather at some point during the coming week into what we call discipleship huddles. And what we... Maybe not, you know, there could be better names. We always wrestled with that. But the whole aim of our discipleship huddle is where we read the word again and we hear the word again and we talk about the word together again so that we are not just hearing it, but we're obeying it. And our purpose is that you would think and ponder and consider the word together, corporately. This is our bread and butter. <laughs> what could possibly work the text from our minds to our hearts and in through our lives better than just talking it through and praying it through together with two or three other people. And if you're not in a discipleship huddle, then there is a podcast called Make and Multiply where, again, we have the opportunity to hear and obey, bring focus to hearing and obeying the word so that it stays with us all week long. And then, and I'm, and I'm pretty sure that most of you may not be aware of this, but, but it's Caleb who plans the song set that we sing at the beginning of this worship gathering. And when he is prayerfully planning that song set, he is intentionally choosing songs that relate to this focus in this sermon. That's what he's going to do for next week. So we sang today things that related to the sermon last week. And the songs we sang last week related to the sermon that you heard the week before that. In other words, we're not just singing to sing. We're not just singing to get through songs. It's because that's what Christians do. We are pondering. We're working. We're thinking. We're, we're, we're driving it in. We're, we're bending our minds again and again and again and again and again. So that this word will stay with us and bear fruit in us and through us. The, the, the Puritans believe that without meditation, it's so huge, truths can be devoured, but not digested. Educational psychologists tell us that if we are introduced to some compelling truth, and then that compelling truth is not reflected on and applied 
the next compelling truth will cancel out the first one. I mean, just think about that. It's almost like almost nothing does us any enduring good. I think that's the reason why so many... so much of contemporary Christianity is thoughtless and superficial and it's self-absorbed because, because what happens is we'll hear a sermon on Sunday and then we'll listen to a podcast on the way home to, or on the way and to, back and forth from work Monday through Friday, go to a Bible study on Tuesday, listen to a bunch of other sermons while working out at the gym, Twitter feeds, it's constantly bombarding us with this intake of news and comments. And then there's videos upon videos alerting us to every possible danger to our Christian experience and some of us like me and have four or five books going on at any one time, and then there are certainly, profe- you know, there's, it's just an avalanche, all canceling everything out. <laughs> you know, that, there's obviously professing Christians who are spiritually starving themselves to death, but you know what, there are so many others who eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, never digesting any of it into their systems. And so we've been pretty intentional about how we've wanted to do our ministry as as a church. And and if this aging pastor could just offer you one little teeny practical exhortation, less is more. 350 years ago, another pastor by the name of James Usher, wrote, One hour spent thus, namely meditating, digesting God's word, one hour spent thus is worth more than a thousand sermons. And this is no debasing of the word, but an honor unto it. Loved ones, Listen, if there is one habit, one exercise by which you may train yourself, position yourself in the path of God's lavish and transforming grace, go to the Lord for this skill of meditation on His Word. It's it's like any exercise, probably hard at first, but you do it, and it's less hard. <laughs> and just think of where we could be in a year, or five years, or ten years. It is an art and a divine competency to it that, that we can organize, but, but ultimately, none, it's one of those things that none, none can teach except the Lord alone. Lord, give me understanding. Give me this skill. Would you have it? Go to God for it. And then you shall make your way, the way of your soul that is prosperous. And then you shall gain the eternal finish line with good success. Let's pray. So we look to you, O Lord, uh, for the help that we need.
the grace that we need. Cause us to will and to act according to your good purpose. just want to turn our attention right here with these words from the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what we do is our practice on the first Sunday of the month is it's, a, it's an act of meditation. We're doing something. We're remembering something. We're pondering something. We're contemplating something. As often as we do it, we're going back and back and back to thinking about what Jesus did. It's an admonition. This act, this Lord's Supper, what we're doing is it's fulfilling Jesus' admonition to meditate on, on his death, to fix our mind's attention on his death. And so we give thought to the fact that Jesus suffered and died. And we give thought to how he suffered and died. His hands and feet were nailed to a cross and he bled. He bled out. He suffocated. We, we give thought to why Jesus suffered and died. He died so that our sins might be atoned for. He died in order to reconcile us to God. He died the death we deserve to die. He took on himself the punishment that we should have endured. We give thought to that. We give thought then to our countless sins, which are the cause of his death. We give thought to our guilt before a holy and righteous God. We give thought to God's extraordinary mercy and love. We give thought to how high and how deep and wide and incomprehensible it all is. We give thought to the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice to pay for all of our sins, whether they're past present or future. We give thought to how this singular death by this one man, the death of Jesus, is what removes from our lives a debt we could not ever pay except through eternal punishment. We give thought to how by entrusting ourselves to this death, Jesus' death, that we, in essence, died with him, were buried with him, and that our sins are gone. And joined to Jesus, our Heavenly Father now counts us holy and blameless in his sight. May this remembering be a cause of great strength and encouragement and nourishment to our souls. Be glorified now, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name.